C4 family, good morning to you. Really glad to, to be back with you. And uh, yeah, it's just really good to be back. I, uh, my wife and my kids and I have been away for about two and a half weeks. I hear while I was gone that you all got a little bit of snow. I was on Facebook one day and saw these terrible pictures of all of you crying and, and getting rid of things. I think at that moment I was, where was I? Oh, that's right. I was on a beach with a virgin pina colada. I just, I just had to say that. Yes, you can send all your emails to the office and not to me about that. Yeah, it's really good to be back with you. Uh, my family took some time away and uh, we... Uh, <laughs> We decided to once again take our three children under five on a five and a half hour plane ride. And uh, uh, um, when we arrived at the airport, my dad was kind enough to drive us like at 4 a.m., got the kids up, you know, uh, got them in the airport, security, they're all excited. My son started walking about three weeks ago, and which is great. And so, of course, this is going to make the plane ride even more exciting for us. Uh, when we arrived in, in the lounge, um, Everyone looked at us, and, and you could see, and they're, they're like, oh, even atheists started praying, oh, God, don't let them sit near us. <laughs> you know? They were just like, oh, please, please, not, not them. And, and anyway, so we got in, and it was five and a half hours, and um, it, went, it went okay. We strapped our son into our car seat, and he wanted to walk, so that was awesome. Uh, the woman in front of him, an older woman, decided that she didn't um, like him very much, which is fine, uh, and she decided to uh, lower her chair back in front of him. And I, I just looked at her, and I, I was like, oh, this love, joy, peace, patience again, right? Uh, Pastor John, Pastor John, Pastor John. But then I just smiled. He just kicked her for five hours. <laughs> And she just sat there, and he just kept kicking. My wife's like, that's right, kick, kick. <laughs> so, anyway. You know, it's interesting when you travel, if you've done it smaller or, or long, long time, um, it's true that we'll put up with a lot if we know something better is coming, right? I mean, that whole airplane was watching us, and yet they knew it was 88 degrees where they were going, so they could put up with some stuff, and, and the same with us. Uh, we'll put up with a ton of stuff if we know something better is coming, well, that's true on a large scale with us who are followers of Jesus. We don't just put up with this life. We live through this life, and this life is beautiful, and it's also deeply painful. But we know something better is coming, and so even when there seems to be no hope, we, we keep going. And yet every once in a while, we come to the place where we, we ask Jesus, and we ask the Holy Father and the Holy Spirit, not to just give us the by-and-by comment and the hope of resurrection, but we beg him, would you, would you maybe just show up now for a moment so I can keep going? It is where we begin this passage today. We're in our year series out of the book of John that we might believe. And today we find ourselves in, in John chapter 11. And so if you've got your Bibles virtually or physically, we've got Wi-Fi in here, we'd love you to turn or navigate to John chapter 11. What's about to take place is interesting because these people are about to live out, they're about to embody what I just said, that they know that a good thing is coming at the end, but in the middle of waiting, they wonder if they can keep going. Now, just so you know, important we're coming to a pivotal moment in the book of John. Pastor Dave and Pastor Joanna preached the last two weeks. I want to publicly thank them for their ministry. I watched them all night. They were great. Let's give them a hand for their preaching. It was good. And I just, I, I love being in a church where I can, I can go away for a bit and there's good biblical teaching. And so they demonstrated a lot of stuff as we come to chapter 11. But at the end of chapter 11, the beginning of chapter 12, we're beginning to see a divide in the Gospel of John. See, chapter 1 through chapter 12 in the book of John takes place over three years. From chapter, the end of chapter 12 all the way to the end, it takes place in three weeks. So you got three years of public ministry and the pre-existence of Christ, and then you have three weeks. Why? Because we're now approaching Jerusalem. We're getting ready for Jesus' trial, his false accusations, Good Friday, the murder of Jesus, Good Saturday where nothing seems to happen, and Easter Sunday where he's risen from the dead and the ascension. So we're about to get into Holy Week, Holy Season, but not yet. Now, over three years, as we've discovered, as we've read and dialogued and talked in our connect groups, we've seen in the book of John that Jesus has done profound things. 
He has healed people. He has set people free. He has taught with authority. He has by word and deed, by sign and by wonder, he has proclaimed the kingdom of God. And he has declared and demonstrated in emphatic terms that he was not just a prophet, that he was not just a rabbi, that he was not just an inspired teacher, but Jesus, who was born 2,000 years ago, is Messiah, he's the King of the Jews, he's the Son of God, he's God in flesh, and he's the only one that always will have access to the Father because he shares the same essence with the Father. That is the Jesus we're discovering in the book of John. Now, the result of Jesus' ministry, of such powerful action, the results of such powerful teaching, the result of Jesus' absolute claims about himself is interesting. Many follow him. Many, many more follow him and then leave him. And most of the religious leaders by this moment are now planning for Jesus' removal by any means necessary. Jesus has clashed with the religious leaders time and time again from chapter 5 all the way through chapter 10. And as Pastor Joe preached last week, Jesus shows up, do you remember, and claims, I am the good shepherd. And then he says, I am the only gate. And then Jesus says, I am the voice. And whoever hears me and believes on me, he knows my voice because my sheep know my voice. But if you do not respond to my claims, you don't know me. Thus, you don't know God. So you are excluded. And then he turns around with, it appears in all pride and gall. But of course, it's not because it's true. And he says to the religious leaders, the pastors of his day, and all of you, you're wicked shepherds. You're not good shepherds. What's the result of Jesus' teaching in chapter 10? Look at verse 31, if you're there. It says the Jewish leaders picked up stones to stone Jesus. And Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For, for which of these miracles are you about to stone me? We're not stoning you for any of these, they replied. Here it is, everyone ready? But for blasphemy, because you... You, Jesus, a mere man, you dare claim to be, oh, there it is, Uh uh-oh, God. See, they understood Jesus' claims. Jesus is claiming absolute divinity. As C.S. Lewis brilliantly wrote, either he is God, he's the worst and best liar in history, or he's the devil. But there is no in-between when someone stands up and declares they're God. And these leaders, the experts in Scripture, knew what Jesus was up to. And yet, in the middle of chaos, in the middle of personal threat, look at the very last verse in chapter 10, verse 42. And in that place, many, many people believed on Jesus. I love this. So in the middle of the messiness of ministry, Jesus now chooses to do the greatest miracle he's done so far. More significant than turning water into wine, more significant than feeding 10,000 with a snack, more significant than walking on water, more significant than letting a born blind man see for the first time. See, now under God's will, Jesus chooses to do something that will summarize all that he has come to offer. He's about to give another living sign that proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that the kingdom of God, the very reign, rule, and presence of the only true living God is breaking into the human story. Do you remember John the Apostle's description of Jesus all the way in chapter 1, verse 4? In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Jesus is life, and he is light, and now he's going to demonstrate it and show it in the most interesting of places. In the middle of death threats and a booming ministry, Jesus chooses a personal crisis, a family crisis, to bring everything to a head. A really close friend of Jesus is sick. I mean, really sick. Jesus has been in this man's home many times. His name is Lazarus. He's sisters is is Mary and Martha. He's hung out in this home a hundred times. This is the place where you could say Jesus could be himself. He could take his sandals off, you know, turn on the TV and hang out. He's away from the crowd. You got to remember, these people risk by knowing Jesus. As Dave preached two weeks ago, you could get kicked out of the local synagogue and the whole village could reject you if you hang out with Jesus now. 
And yet these people keep believing. When the crowds leave, they're still with them. When the circle gets smaller and smaller, they stay. When the religious leaders, who by the way live only 1.7 miles away from them, begin to plan and try killing Jesus, they stay loyal. Jesus is close to this family. And yet this family you could call the family of the committed, this bedrock family of belief, is not only in crisis, the very fabric of their family is being ripped apart by death. John 11.1 1 reads like this. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, a village of Mary and his sister Martha. This is Mary, who, who, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus. Lord, the one you love is sick. Mary and Martha send word to Jesus about Lazarus' condition. And notice, this is not an invitation, and this is not a request. It is a desperate cry mixed with an expected command. They, they expect Jesus to drop everything right now, rush to the brother's side, and heal him and set him free. He's sick, by the way, everyone. I mean sick. This is not just some call, cold. This is not even some serious flu. This isn't even being in the ER. This is like the doctor showing up and saying, listen, everyone, your brother has cancer through his whole body. I'm going to give him maybe four to five days. Prepare yourself. He's going to die. You're going to remember they live in a time where communication's slow. No cell phones, no beepers, no phones, no Twitter, no email, no Facebook, no nothing. And so they grab someone and say, you got to go get the teacher now. Run. And the messenger runs. And the messenger shows up. And notice what he says to Jesus on their behalf. You need to drop everything. And you need to come now. And notice what Mary and Martha remind Jesus of. Oh, it's so important today. They say, and by the way, Jesus, just a reminder. This is the one that you say what? You love. You've healed hundreds of strangers, Jesus. You fed 10,000 people, and half of them walked out on you. You keep healing people and delivering people. You don't even know their names. But I want to remind you this morning, Jesus, of one thing. You've been in our home, and we've been committed to you. And oh, by the way, you say you love him. You better show up because you love him more than a stranger. Right, Jesus? When Jesus heard this in verse 4, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so God's Son might be glorified through it. Can I just stop and point out something? There is only one true living God according to Scripture, and it says in Scripture, God does not share His glory with another, and yet Jesus says, I share in it. So either He's a liar or He actually is God. Did you catch it? He says, I'm going to be glorified through this, and so is my Father. This sickness will not end in death. The purpose of this sickness... Not all sickness, but this sickness is the plan of God, and in the end, it's not going to end in death. Now, verse 4, I misread it about three times. I read it as his statement just to his guys. Boys, listen up. This is good news. But actually, it's more than that. This is Jesus' response back to the messenger, not just to his twelve. So the messenger would start running back at this moment in the story. And he would go back and say to Mary and Martha, great news, everyone. This, it, Jesus says, Lazarus is not going to die. But by the time the messenger gets back, Lazarus is dead. Uh-oh. And Jesus was wrong. Can you imagine the bewilderment? I mean, he hasn't been wrong yet in three years, and now he's wrong. Well, maybe he isn't what he claimed. Maybe, maybe he, he isn't what we thought. I mean, maybe he had a bad day. Maybe, you know. See, Jesus is now going to be put to the ultimate test, and the ultimate test is coming to those who have been most faithful to him. It says in verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. He really did. And when he had heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. He doesn't move. He doesn't rush. He actually books into the local Motel 8 and hangs out. Let's get a latte, boys. We've got some time. Now, many people think that he waited for two more days so Lazarus would die, and then he could go deal with the situation. But see, actually, that's not the case. See, by the time the messenger would have got back, he would have already been dead. If we look down to verse 39, it says, by the time Jesus does show up, Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. See, when Jesus gets the message, Lazarus is already dead. 
And Jesus, knowing, as we're about to find out, that he is dead, decides to wait two more days. And he does it under the compulsion of heaven. See, this is what we catch here. Jesus knows, and heaven knows, that there must be full resurrection and not any form of resuscitation. There must, everyone ready? Twitter out. There must be no hope at all for real hope to shine. This is the deliberate, sovereign, providential will of God to remove all doubt and all excuse. So when Jesus shows up, no one's going to say they invented it. No, no, Jesus is going to show up. Now, can you just imagine for a moment being Mary or Martha? How do you think the sisters are feeling right about now? Mystified? Angry? Fine, Jesus. Fine. If you're not going to show up and heal him, you know, the one you love, then at least would you show up on time for the funeral? Or maybe even the mourning period. At least come and show some respect. Could you, I don't know, hold us, comfort us, pastor us, teach us? Like, you claim to be the good shepherd, right? Well, I'm over here, and I'm not feeling very loved. Jesus, of course, knows that his delay is going to bring deeper belief, deeper love, deeper faith, deeper worship, deeper everything. He said to his disciples after two days, verse 7, let's go back to Judea. (laughs) And they said, "Uh, Rabbi, a short while ago, uh, reminder here, the Jews tried stoning you to death. Are you really going to go back there? And Jesus said, "Uh, guys, are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees with the light, the world's light. So when he walks by night, he stumbles, for he has no light. I'm sure the disciples are like, what? We just said you're going to get killed. What are you, what? Come on, just tell us something straight. Here's what he's saying. Boys, no one can touch me. Don't you know that no one takes my life? There are 12 hours of daylight. We're still in daylight. I'm still walking around. When I choose to give up my life, don't you worry, it's going to happen. But these guys who keep trying to kill me, they can't touch me until my dad and I say, it's time. So let's go. After he said this, he went on to tell these guys, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. And I'm going to go there to wake him up. Jesus, using the spiritual gift of words of knowledge now in play, knows that Lazarus is dead. And he says, I'm going to go wake him up. But of course, they, like all of us, don't get it. They go, oh, how fantastic, Lord. If he sleeps, then he'll get better. That's logical. Jesus, of course, is speaking about Lazarus' death, but the disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad, joyful, and very excited that I was not there so you might believe. Let's go to him. He declares his friend is dead, period. Let's be honest about death this morning, you and here online. Death is inescapable. Death is ruthless. Death is the harsh reality of our life. Death is unrelenting. You can't run from it. You can't cheat it. You can't bribe it. You can't outwit it. You can't overcome it. You cannot elude it. It does not discriminate. Death loves snacking on the old, the young, the poor, the rich, the healthy, the sick, the wicked, and the wise. Death is universal. Everyone within the sound of my voice, we all are going to face this too. And Lazarus has experienced it now. And yet notice, do you see what Jesus says? He says, I am so excited Lazarus is dead. I'm so glad I wasn't there. I'm so joyful and excited. I have purpose in my life. My purpose-driven life experience is right here. And people go, hold on, Jesus. This is one of your closest friends. Are you going to talk about that when I die? Like, I don't understand you. Wrong reaction, Jesus. But Jesus understands that Lazarus' death is going to bring them back to him even closer. It's going to bring them to belief. He said, I am so excited that this is happening. See, this is going to move you. This is going to expand your faith. It's going to grow your faith. It's going to change your faith. Don't you understand? You're going to move from seeing me as teacher to Messiah to king to really know that I am the creator in flesh. You see, this moment, everyone, is going to bring life out of hopelessness. Thomas, called Didymus, verse 16, said to the rest of them, well, okay, let's all go up that we may die with them. Right? But I'm really glad he says it because he's just being honest. He's not being, like he's just saying, listen, there's a death threat out against Jesus. And honestly, Jesus is going really close to Jerusalem, so he's probably going to get killed and so are we. So if if I'm the doubting guy and I'm going, then you can all go too, right? Peter, let's move. 
On their arrival in verse 17, Jesus found Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. They arrive. You know, four days matter. I didn't know this. But the four days actually helps this whole sermon this morning. Four days is significant. The Jewish thinking of the time. See, when someone had died, they believed when they laid them into the tomb, the soul would hang around the body for three days, waiting to see if a miracle would happen. But on day four, when the soul of the person started to see the body decompose, when rot began to take place, it would know that it would know that it would know that there was no hope. So guess what? The soul would leave. See, day four in the Jewish religious mind is no hope day. Nothing can now change the situation. You could say it this way. Lazarus is dead, dead. The soul is gone. This is the dark night of the soul. And then it says in verse 18, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus was now in trouble too because if the leaders heard he was there, Jesus would end up dead, dead too. Jesus arrives beyond late. Mary and Martha are broken, exhausted. Their brother has now been laid in the tomb. They've placed him in what they called back then a traveling dress. They'd wrapped him in bandages and spices, and it was over. Day four is the height of the mourning period. The professional whalers would be screaming at the top of their lungs over and over again in the house. There is no hope. There is no hope. There is no hope. Like they and us, all of us have lost people too soon. Snatched from our love, snatched from our life, snatched from what could have been their life with too many songs still to sung, too many poems to read, too many experiences ripped away, and now they are pale and grieving and exhausted by the crowd like all of us. And they, like us, respond with disillusionment and anger and loss, regret and sorrowful acceptance. What is done is done. It says in verse 19, a lot of people showed up to the funeral to hang out. When Martha, verse 20, heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, and Mary stayed at the house, and, 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 and Martha says, Lord, I mean, if you'd just been here, not there, here, my brother, he would not have died, but I know that even now God gives you whatever you ask. If you had just shown up on time, you could have done something. I mean, where were you? We called, Right? He's dead, and you have the answer. You are the answer, and I actually believe you're the answer. Look, I can't go anywhere else. I've looked around, and no one else has answers like you. But i got to be honest with you right now. You really disappoint me. You cause me grief. Sovereignty has caused me the greatest pain. I feel like Naomi in the Old Testament called me Mara. I have nothing left, and yet I still think you're good and holy. What do I do with that? She knows more at this moment than almost every person on earth. She understands that Jesus does not act alone, but acts on behalf of the Father. That's why she says, I know what God does. Jesus looks at her and says, you know, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, yeah, I know. I know he'll rise again in the resurrection of the last day. I believe this. I believe any person who truly knows God has the hope of resurrection. But see, Jesus, let me tell this to you plainly. I needed you yesterday, not tomorrow. Where were you four days ago? Sure, we get the resurrection. Yes, in the by and by, things are going to be better. But now, I wanted to experience what you promised in the future. In the now, isn't that why you're here? When pastor preached, have you felt this way, O church? Where were you, Jesus? You come too late all the time. Where were you when my loved one died? Where were you when my marriage fell apart? Where were you when my parents divorced? Where were you when my father became an alcoholic? Where were you when I was cheated time and time again out of promotions? Where were you when my son walked away? Where were you in that accident? Where were you? Where are you? Where are you? Jesus said to her, this is not a pat answer, by the way. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though they die. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Martha, do you believe this? Jesus looks right back at her and says, Even though people die, if they trust in me, I am the guarantee of resurrection. And if they become spiritually alive in this life, they will be eternally alive forever. Just side note, is this not our hope as Christians? 
Is this why our funerals are different, though we do wail and mourn and struggle? Do we also not have unnatural joy? I remember being in a funeral home and walking in, and there was a Hindu funeral happening here and an atheist funeral down the way, and my grandfather or grandmother was being buried upstairs, and I heard the wailing and the loss, and I walked upstairs. Dave Collins was doing the funeral, and though it wasn't an exciting funeral, it was something that we, we wept and we went, but the resurrection is true. And it was different in that room than the others. We don't mourn like the others, not because we're arrogant, not because we're better, not because we're more moral. We have hope that is unnatural because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He doesn't just give resurrection and life. He is resurrection and life. And no matter when our time comes, there is a day coming where he will call us back from the dead. He will not only make us right, he will make creation right. He will make nations right. He will provide a new heavens and a new earth. That is the hope we find in this Jesus we worship in this church. Beautiful, beautiful Savior. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? I cannot believe what Martha says back. This woman who absolutely is despondent with Jesus and at the same time believes, says, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. I not only believe you're Messiah, I actually know about your divinity. She's saying more than the disciples have basically said to this point. Where's Mary? Where's Mary during all this? The one that sat at Jesus' feet loving and drinking and everything Jesus said. She's at home. She's on the ground sitting on the floor. All the furniture has been moved out. The house is packed with people. They've just finished eating the funeral food of that day. Their funeral food back then was not egg salad sandwiches, by the way. And little things we all cooked together. It was boiled eggs and lentils and round loaves of bread that symbolized rolling into eternity and never coming back. Jesus sent for her. Martha runs home and Mary hears and Mary comes back and it actually says a whole group of people follow her because they think that she's going to the tomb and she shows up and see what she says. Lord, if you'd been here, Where were you? When Jesus saw her weeping and also saw the Jewish weeping around her, it says that Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and he was troubled. Now, by the way, if you're a highlighting person, I want you to totally highlight that phrase, deeply moved and troubled. It's not what you think it is. This is not Jesus weeping over the loss of his friend. Deeply troubled and moved in spirit in Greek means angry beyond belief, agitated. There's a word I'll use, but I I won't use from the pulpit, but you can think about it. Like angry. Why is Jesus angry at Mary and Martha? No, no, no. This is the same type of word used when Herod wanted to kill baby Jesus. So agitated, moved to something. The idea physically is Jesus starts trembling from head to foot in sorrow. Why? Because Jesus is wholly filled with anger. Because he is now coming again face to face with the kingdom of darkness and sin and death. And he is so, so angry that these enemies keep touching the world. I like when Jesus gets angry because he does things about it and he does them right. Jesus is really angry, not at the people, but at death. It was Chuck Swindoll who said, unlike the selfish gods of Greek mythology, the triune God, the Bible, the God of the Bible empathizes with our, his creation and he is justifiably angry at the cruelty of evil which oppresses his beloved creation. Death is the ultimate affront to his creative act. He tries to destroy what he intended to last, what? Forever. Where have you laid him? Jesus asked. Come and see, they said. And then it says, smallest verse in the Bible. You can start here with memorization, verse 35. Jesus, say it together, wept. And the Jews said, see how he loved him. See, we actually moved from anger now to real weeping. Jesus wept. I love that God wept over his friend. Gives me great hope that Jesus weeps for us too. Jesus wept. 
And then they ask the honest question that you would ask, I would. <laughs> could, could not the one who opened the eyes of a blind man keep this man from dying? And then Jesus once more became deeply agitated, deeply angry, and he came to the entrance of the tomb. As he approaches death, he moves from mourning again back to serious anger. And it says a cave with a stone was laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, Jesus said. And Martha said, Lord, verse 39, but Lord, by this time there's a bad odor. He's been in there for, for four days. Don't do this, Jesus. This is humiliating. You didn't show up on time. Don't pick at that scab and open it back up. We've buried him. Don't open this misery. Don't let the smell of my brother hit my nostrils. Don't make me look at him again don't understand. Why are you doing this? Open it up. Did I not tell you, verse 40, that if you believed that you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, and I've said this for the benefit of people standing here, that they might believe in the one you have sent. Now, this is important. Everyone ready? This is the heartbeat of a theology of healing. See, some churches teach everyone gets healed if you, if you love Jesus enough. Other churches teach no one gets healed. We're just going to wait. We teach in this church, if God says so, yes. If God does not say so, we say no. Healing, theology at its heart, is permission-based. Jesus stands and says, I have gone before the Father, and I have permission by the Father to raise Lazarus from the dead. We've agreed on this, and so it's going to be done. This isn't prayer anymore. This is authoritatively correcting a situation. We teach in this church that if healing is going to happen, we need to ask Jesus yes or no. If he says yes, let's name it, claim it until the cows come home, because that person's getting up. But if he says no, we don't do it. Jesus demonstrates how to use power ministry right here. It is permission, permission. It is not guaranteed, and it is not not guaranteed. We need to ask the one who maybe is running things. Right, everyone? And so he does this, and he has permission because he does nothing except what the Father tells him. And he raises Lazarus from the dead, and he says this, Lazarus, come out. Now, can you imagine the moment? I mean, the Oscars here tonight. This is an Oscar moment. <laughs> Everyone looks at Jesus and then looks over at the cave. And looks back at Jesus because if he fails to quote young adults, this is an epic fail hashtag. <laughs> like epic fail. Epic, by the way, if you're older, is now the replacement of awesome from my generation. Just so you know. So Jesus yells. He cries out, not because he had to. You don't need to be loud to be impressive to God. Just he does it so the crowd knows. Lazarus, come out. If he doesn't come out, the ministry is over. Jesus is wrong. And suddenly, there's movement. One person, I'm sure, screamed. Then two, then five. People start freaking right out. This guy starts hopping out. (laughs) Because, by the way, he's wrapped in 100 pounds of resin. Did you know that? And Jesus says, go and take the grave clothes off him. And they do it. And suddenly people start screaming and yelling and running. Mary and Martha are ripping off these clothes. They take off the thing. There's no rot there anymore. Lazarus says, good morning. What's going on? Can you imagine this? People, all the mourners are freaking out. And then then people look back at Jesus and go, oh, See, the funeral has become a homecoming. And at that moment, it says, and I love this at the end, it says, and therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and Martha saw what Jesus did, and they put their what? Say it loud. Faith in him. Well, of course they did. Of course they did. We can clap. This is a good story, by the way. Now, in this passage, we learn so much. The divinity of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus, the holy anger of God towards the enemies that haunt us as a family. We see God's redemptive act. We see a foreshadowing of Jesus' death and resurrection. And unlike Lazarus, who will need grave clothes again, Jesus won't need them. Amen? But why this passage for this moment for this church? Why are you here this morning? Why did God ordain you here? All of you online, why now? 
Let me tell you, when I was preparing this message, I got unbelievably excited to preach it. Not because it preaches well, but because of its timing. You say, John, what is the point of this passage for the church? Let me tell you. See, four, put your cell phones down and listen and look, please, upon me. Seriously. You online, whatever you're doing, just stop and look at the screen. We are facing a Lazarus moment as a church. Until we begin to take the teaching of Scripture deeply and seriously, we will not be moved to profound action. Don't you understand, O church, that Lazarus is all around you? Some of your marriages are dead this morning. Lazarus. Some of your prayer lives are sick and dying. Lazarus. Some of you have not walked with Jesus deeply in years. Lazarus. Some of you are struggling with such things. You live more in Lazarus' world than Jesus' world. And if that is not painful enough, Let us be truly, bluntfully honest this morning about the condition of every person we know who does not know Jesus. Scripture is clear that if you do not know Jesus, you are dead in your trespasses. Every baby you hold, every grandmother you talk to, your neighbors, your friends, you you sit with in a university classroom, who you work with, if they don't know Jesus, they're Lazarus. Until this church begins to take the word of God at its core and realize that every person that we love and don't love and don't know and know in Durham that does not know Jesus, they are in a state of death like Lazarus. We will never be moved to do anything significant. Lazarus is all around us. And only when churches get to the place where they go, oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus, if you don't show up, nothing's going to happen because Lazarus is in front of me. We'll keep believing we can do something. Lazarus is everywhere. Everywhere. And how you face death changes how you live. Until this church believes what Paul wrote, then you'll keep thinking your friends are just sick. And you can convince them about Jesus. You can't. This is a resurrection moment. See, this is why I want to inspire you this morning. Death is not the end for us. Death is the beginning for us. We have a resurrection faith in this church and every church that claims Jesus. Anglican, Baptist, Pentecostal, or in between. We who proclaim Jesus say death is the best ground because death is where resurrection takes place. And this is what we're about. And so what we need to do is look around Durham Five, six hundred thousand people and go, oh Jesus, this is exciting. There are so many dead people here. I am elated. Let's get to work. We need to admit, if you do not believe that people are spiritually dead, repent and work it out with Jesus because it will change how you work with people. Here's the second lesson for us. Mary and Martha demonstrate how a corporate church is supposed to respond. I love this this morning. Mary and Martha are not self-sufficient. They didn't go, well, we're just going to pull up our bootstraps and run three more programs and everything. No. Nor are they fatalists. Oh, there's nothing we can do. No, no. They refuse fatalism and they refuse self-sufficiency because they have met someone named Jesus who's given them a radical new understanding of history that in the person of Jesus and the promises of Jesus, he brings the future into the now. And they, when Lazarus is dying and then has died completely, when they know there's no hope, who do they call on? The only one who can deal with it, Jesus. Lazarus is dead, and they know that the only hope they have is Jesus. See, when a church rejects self-sufficiency, we're educated enough, we're, we're good enough, we're wealthy enough, and when we also reject fatalism, there's nothing we can do, and we get serious about prodding and begging and running to Jesus until he does something, things change. Prayer is how we do this, everyone. See, there's more prayer in this church than there has ever been that I know about but there's not enough yet. One of the things we are missing in this church is a long corporate prayer time where the whole community gathers and desperately says to Jesus, unless you show up, Lazarus will not get out of the tomb. 
I don't know how we're going to do that. We're going to keep working on it. But I'm just saying to you now, if you get serious about Lazarus, you are going to start becoming, and we must become a church of corporate prayer in our connect groups, in our own life, and across this church where we are desperate. Jesus, Lazarus is dying. Where are you? Jesus, Lazarus is dead. Do something. Do something. Do something. Because we've got nothing left in our hands. When prayers get desperate like that in this church, more people will come to Jesus because we're relying on heaven. Lazarus and Mary and Martha demonstrate what we are called to become. You want to see a revival? Get desperate like them. Get desperate like them. If your prayer life is not desperate enough yet, ask Jesus to make it desperate. Mary and Martha demonstrate a radical, inspiring hope. But here's the thing I love about the story. Lazarus gets raised from the dead. And many people believe on Jesus. You want to know when real power starts ebbing in a church more and more week by week? When people start standing up and saying, I want to tell you about my personal encounter with Jesus. When they start publicly saying, and it doesn't matter, I've met him. You got to understand. And see, when people start doing that, we who are like Mary and Martha, who have been faithful with Jesus for years during the good times and bad times, we go, oh, he's still around. Oh, thank you. And other people who don't know Jesus go, if, if he did it to them, he could maybe do it to me. Let me say this morning, the power of personal stories and testimony is the lifeblood of a real, genuine revival. Because when people start standing up and saying, no, I've really, really, really met him, and let me tell you what I was and what I am, see, that's what begins to take place. Now, here's my problem as one of your leaders. We've been inundated with stories since November 1st, 2010. We have at least 100 documented stories now of people that have had Lazarus-like moments where they were literally in a death situation and Jesus showed up and he's never shown up like this before. And and trying to understand how to get this out to a whole large growing church is difficult. Videos are fine sometimes, but just let me say this this morning. C4, everyone listening? Everyone ready? We need your stories. We need you to start being un-Canadian and not being so shy And standing up and saying in your connect group, and then emailing them to us and saying, listen, I've got to tell you what Jesus has done since November 1st or six months ago or eight. You've got to hear what Jesus has done. See, here's the reason why. Because when stories start getting shared publicly, a church moves from internal battle and focus to outward mission every single time. Many people will believe when people start standing up in C4 and saying, I am Lazarus, and let me tell you what he's done in my life. Prayer, honest assessment, and personal stories. Now, here's the stories that we've had so far. This is, the, this is what I can say. These are the stories we've been given, the themes. Some of you have become Christians. That's a Lazarus moment. We'd all agree. Some of you have had marriages saved. They're not perfect, We're not saying anyone's perfect, but you would say, you know what? Six months ago, eight months ago, a year ago, done. Like done, done. Not anymore. Some of you have started to say to us as leaders, I have a new understanding of Jesus' truth in my life. I just, I cannot describe it. Some of you have talked about a deep concern for the lost. You actually have talked about weeping over lost people in your devotional times, and you never did this before. Some of you have talked about a new prayer life, that your prayer life has been raised from the dead. Some of you have talked about a new empowerment with your spiritual gifts. Not only that you found out what they were, but when you started using them and asking God, things happened. Here's a huge one for many of you. Everyone ready? A new love for Scripture. More and more people keep saying to me, John, I opened the Bible and I've read it for years, but suddenly when I open it, it's just alive and fresh. One guy said to me, every time I open it, he said, I'm in my 50s. I've known Jesus my whole life. I weep. What's wrong with me? I'm like, nothing's wrong with you. Keep crying. Finally, Jesus is hearing and speaking. Some of you have shared this radical forgiveness of others that you could not do in yourself. You've begun the process of literally forgiving people. Others of you are public and you're saying, I've been set free from the demonic. That was my experience in my mind, in my heart, in my very essence. And Jesus, since November 1st, has shown up and I am free Some of you have talked about a new repentance of sin. Not just, oh Lord, I sinned again. No, there's a changing. 
Some of you have started saying, I love people I didn't love before. Some of you have a new love for church leaders and even the idea of church because either you had an attitude issue or actually church leaders of the church hurt you terribly or a mix. And suddenly Jesus has shown up in such power. He's raised that part of you from the dead that guess what's happening? You start loving church because you know you can't have Jesus without his people. Others are saying that you've stood in your homes against the presence of evil over your children. And as you've stood, you've seen freedom and, and your relationships change. Others have said a new mercy for people has happened. Some of you have actually had the experience of really openly confessing your sins to other. No hiddenness, just this is my sin. And when you've done it, there's been freedom. And some of you have come and said in deep humility, you've actually sensed the very presence of holy, the holy Jesus himself. That in times of prayer that you didn't even expect, Jesus came so close, you were moved to worship, repentance, and holiness, and you can say, I've ne just never. See, the problem is all this is happening across our church, but many of you are not connecting the dots because you only speak to your own circle. But I want to declare this morning that Jesus is up to new things here. And I've been saying it for two years, and I'm not inventing this. He really is up to new things. Jesus is coming not only to raise much of this church back to life, he is coming to raise much of Durham back to life too. So here's how I want to end. And this is important. And this is not a show or a stunt. I want you to stand when I ask you to, when I read through these experiences. Because until this church stops looking at me and looks around and sees others, they're not going to believe it. And here's what's important about this moment. People who are about to stand, you're not spiritual than anyone else. You're not also saying that you're done. But for we who don't stand during this, don't be discouraged. Because maybe Jesus met you before November 1st. Or maybe you could say, maybe he'll do, with it, do it with me too. So here's what I want to do. If you became a Christian since November 1st, 2010, and I realize the whole church isn't here. We've got people serving. We've got a community tonight. But if you've become a Christian since 2010, just stand. I don't know if anyone's here this morning, but stand. Awesome. Okay, great. Okay, all right. All right. Now, don't sit down. This is very important you keep standing. I know this is very un-Canadian. I'm sorry. Online, you can stand too. Okay. Now, if you, if you have more than one experience, you just raise your hand. Can anyone stand before us genuinely and say your marriage has been radically changed and saved by Jesus himself since November 2001? Yeah? All right. Very important. Because I think we all know, we who are married, when marriages get saved, it's got to be Jesus. Okay, Has, can anyone stand and say you have a genuine, uh, not just, oh, I learned something, keep standing, a new, deep, deep understanding of Jesus' truth in your life you did not have before, since November 1st? Okay. Okay, great. Okay. Okay, actually, you know what? We're going to have to do this like the Oscars. Hold your applause, because we're over. Okay. Okay, we'll, we'll do this. I want you to keep watching this. Okay. Can anyone say genuinely that in your devotional times, in your connect group, you've had a deep change where you've begun to be very concerned about lost people and even you've experienced weeping for the first time over someone who's lost who doesn't know Jesus? Could you stand? Very, this is significant. This is heart change for Christians. Can anyone say that they have a real new prayer life since November 1st, 2010? Okay. Can anyone stand and say, not that you just learned about your spiritual gifts, because we all did that, but you've had a seen a deep empowerment of God when you use the gifts he's given you. When you use them humbly, things have happened that you did not expect. Could you stand? Okay. Can anyone stand? This is the one I'm excited about, one of them. I'm excited about all of you, by the way. Hugs. <laughs> a deep new love for the Bible, even to the point that you've had deep joy or weeping over Scripture for the first time. Okay, very significant. Can anyone stand, and this is tough, and say that you've either begun or you've been able to fully forgive someone who's deeply hurt you, who may not even deserve your forgiveness humanly, but Jesus, because he's forgiven you, has taught you to do this. Could you stand? Look, look unnatural 
Okay. Can anyone stand who's been set free from the deep presence of evil by the living power of Jesus? Watch this. Yes, in North America. Welcome. Can anyone say that there's a deep new repentance of sin in your life? You've repented and it's a new thing for you. Could you stand? Awesome. Can someone stand or some stand and say you have a new love for others you just did not have before and you'd say it's only Jesus? Okay, good. I, this is going to be a good one. A deep love for church leaders here or somewhere else? No, it's fine. I'm joking. I know, no, we've made a lot of mistakes. We're humans. Or even a deep love for the local church itself and God has given you that back. Could you stand or raise your hand? It's huge. Great, thank you. Has anyone stood in their home in the last two years and declared that evil no longer can have presence at any time and there's been freedom? Great. Has anyone able to stand and say you have a new mercy for people that's from Jesus around you and you just go, I don't know where it's coming from. Could you stand? Great. Has anyone openly confessed their sins to others? I mean openly without hiddenness confessed all the stuff in front of others and found freedom like James says. I'm raising my hand by the way. Okay, great. This last one is not more important, but it's significant. And and please, please, listen. If you've actually experienced the holy presence of Jesus personally in devotions or in your connect group or in in church, like just in a way you go, "I, I can't describe it. Could you please stand or raise your hand? This is very important. Okay, stop. Keep your hands up. Look. Okay, thanks. Stay standing for a second. I, I want you to see that for you online, there are hundreds of people standing. Look around. No, seriously, look around. This doesn't happen every day in church. This isn't just a moment. Jesus is starting a new thing among us. So here's my prayer for you who are standing and you who are sitting. And let's pray together. And then as Nikki's going to come up, we're going to end with one thing. But can you, can you just join me in prayer? Lord God, look, I mean, we just want to openly thank you as a church for this. Because we know it's not just by programs. You've begun something. It's unnatural. Oh God, I pray for myself and every person standing, you'd perpetuate this, that this would not die but grow. I pray for every one of us who is sitting, who has already had the experience, we thank you. And for we who are desperately feeling disconnected right now and wondering where you are, Jesus, because you are all about holy timing, we pray now that you'd meet the rest of our community. With no judgment, just meet them, Lord. And we continue to pray for a new work. We pray, O oh Lord, that this church, myself, all of us would take Lazarus seriously. Oh, Jesus, as it says in the Old Testament, would you send your spirit upon us to give a spirit of supplication? In other words, a desperation in prayer until, Jesus, you sovereignly show up and raise people to life. And we pray, oh Lord, for more and more and more Lazarus moments among us. Do not relent because we don't want to play church. We want to walk with Jesus. One thing, sorry. Can you put the lights back up for a moment? Sorry. We don't usually, just put them right back up. Is there anyone this morning, is there anyone here this morning who has never met the Jesus we're talking about and wants to meet him this morning? Could you raise your hand? I know it's public, but is there anyone? Because I, sh- I, I must give this invitation. Is there anyone at all? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Okay, let's pray. You pray with me, okay? Jesus, if you're the same Jesus from this passage and you've met all these people, I want you to raise me from the dead too. Forgive me of my sins. I trust in you as Savior and Lord. Change me, we pray. And all of God's people pray for this person and said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's stand together, all of us together. And let us give thanks, give thanks, give thanks to Jesus who's doing new things among us. Sing, 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 because a new thing has begun.